We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Starting Dynasty season, checking in on some FFPC contests. That's what we'll be talking about today. On Stealing Pedanas, I'm Ben Gretsch. You can find me on Twitter at Yards Per Gretsch. You can find my Substack at bengretsch.substack.com. With me, as always, is Sean Siegel. You can find all of his work at Rotoviz. Sean, it's kind of a choppy title. We we want to talk a little bit more about the playoffs. We want to talk a little bit more about the beginning of dynasty season and some of the things that we're planning to do with our team and, and some of the things that uh, people who listen to the show who are in their own dynasty league should be thinking of doing here in January and into February. But yeah, we have uh plenty to talk about certainly uh, still. Ben has just woken up, but he is fired up for this show. I can assure you we're going to go over some of the structures you can use for the FFPC playoff contest to a similar format to the original contest, which obviously was an absolute blast. But this week, only eight teams remaining, only eight player positions that you have to fill, and maybe a greater chance of duplication. So you're going to have to be creative in terms of building those lineups to make sure you get the leverage you need and build a lineup to where if you do win, you're not sharing it with 10 to 20 other people. Then we're also going to be discussing, uh, we closed last week's show, and I thought it was a lot of fun, talking some dynasty, talking a little bit Darren Waller and what his trade value was because there had been a trade in our league with Waller. And then right as we were closing the show, we actually got an offer that included Waller from the team who had just acquired him. So we'll be looking at that a little bit, starting to break down our offseason plan for this dynasty team and also then applying that to dynasty in general, kind of how... We want our teams to look how we want the offseason to progress, what we're excited about, you know, what strategies, what tactics we will use. And, you know, trying to look at it from the perspective of a specific team, but also then how do you generalize that? What big picture things are we trying to do? So these two elements are a lot of fun. I'm excited for the playoffs. I'm excited to start making dynasty trades and we'll see where we go here. Yeah, absolutely. And you are right. I, I did just wake up. I'm a little bit on island time already. It is nice to be into the offseason. Yeah, the, the second chance FFPC playoff contest is very fun. It's a little bit of a different structure. In the uh, the first one, you had 12 roster spots, and there's 14 teams. You pick one player from each team, and then you also have two teams that you completely fade. You have a kicker and a defense as well that we kind of refer to as soft fades. And so you you have a lot of ways to get different. Like you mentioned about this, you know, greater chance to duplicate your lineup. You had a lot of ways to get different in the ways that you play the fades, the kicker, the defense position. Uh, as it turned out, the the top scoring defense in, in round one among the losers was Pittsburgh by a good margin. And they were only played in like a couple percentage points of lineups. And so, you know, you had like New England's defense was in almost half of all lineups. You typically wanted your, your D's and your kickers to be eliminated in the first round. I think Pittsburgh's D was played in only 3% of lineups. They're like a huge differentiating piece. So there's some elements there where you, you know, to, to build some of the best lineups, you can do some things with D and kicker. In this one, no D and kicker, no teams that you're fading. You play one player from each of the eight teams. And so it is hard to get unique. And the way the prize structure is very top heavy, if you do duplicate lineups, 
you are basically cutting into the expected value of your entry, certainly. And so you want to find ways, I think, to make smart lineups, but also to be very much trying to be unique. The advantage we have is I do think it's a really interesting one this year because there are a lot of ways to get off sort of the chalk. We have Cooper Cup advancing and Devontae Adams still there, who were the two chalkiest players in the main one. We have Derrick Henry, all positive reports, was played in about half of lineups even before we had the positive reports, I expect that's going to only go up, especially because the running backs were not very good last week. A lot of even the advancing running backs. Um, we have potentially Leonard Fournette coming back. And so some uncertainty with Tampa Bay there, but ways to, to pivot. And then also you can look at the ways the first round played out. Debo Samuel did very well. And Elijah Mitchell did, did, did well as well for San Francisco. George Kittle did not. So Kittle becomes an interesting pivot. Uh, you look at Cincinnati. Mixon was solid. Obviously, Chase was very good. Higgins did almost nothing. I think, you know, he was already not very highly played in the in the first contest. I expect that won't go up. Uh, you have guys like Cam Akers who came out of nowhere and are interesting, but I think because of Cooper Cup probably has no shot to be more than like 10% rostered. You still have pivot pay, plays in guys like Aaron Jones, who we were considering in the larger contest as a low-owned, you know, option. It's a really actually interesting contest. Both of, you know, Buffalo and Kansas City, both their quarterbacks did so well that they're going to be the, the overwhelmingly chalky quarterbacks, I think. That showdown looks really interesting, but I think you could build a team with any of the other quarterbacks potentially where you're you're basically saying the winner of Buffalo and Kansas City loses in the, in the AFC Championship. And so there are all these different ways I think you can look at look at how you want to build lineups and and find like smart leverage plays and find plays that are probably like, I think it's a, a lot of the teams are going to be fairly condensed. Kelsey's another one that I think will be very popular. And one of the things I've really enjoyed using to build lineups for the original turn that I feel like worked very well for the teams that I've built with Colin Kelly, my co-host on overtime, to use the game level similarity projections on Rotoviz, use our fantasy football strength of schedule streamer and again when you're using some of these tools you don't want to overstate the conclusions but they give you a little bit of a sense of different ways that games can go and it helps you find some of the pivots that you might like to do right I mean, you shouldn't let it push you too far in one direction it shouldn't let you get overconfident but it does show up some different ideas that you might try and how a game might get skewed a little bit more than it seems like and so one of the things that we do there with the game level similarity projections, you have matching players, matching defenses, and then the 50 closest results. One of the things the tool really helps you to do is to visualize range of outcomes, which is something, again, that can be very helpful to this kind of tournament. So we have this element where we're trying to think through the range of outcomes for the particular players and then also scenarios for the teams and what scenarios could play out at a team level that would then allow our pivots to work together here and then one of the things that was interesting in terms of looking through these projections the wide receivers again not surprisingly with the talent that they have are expected to pretty easily destroy the running backs so then the question is you know how do we find these running backs Devin Singletary obviously had a good game last week I think Jarrett McKinnon pretty interesting at least as we record here on Thursday the latest news was that the Chiefs Still not sure about Clyde Edwards Alaire and you know, want to see him be able to practice really fully before they kind of go in that direction with how well McKinnon played last week. I think McKinnon, especially in a loss as a receiving back, could be the guy that you want to go with there. And the reason we say in a loss is that it does kind of look like at some point if the Chiefs continue to advance, that Edwards Alaire will cut into the workload, which would be problematic. Uh, a couple other guys that jump out as being really interesting, right? The running back scoring is projected to be low in part because Tennessee and Cincinnati, the two sort of clear cut running backs there with Derrick Henry and Joe Mixon, not great matchups against each other. The guy who jumps out at running back is Leonard Fournette. He has easily the best projection in the GLSP. And so then the question comes down to, you know, how do you build around that and how confident you want to be? Obviously, one of the big elements of last week, and I was kind of disappointed that it worked out this way, uh, but you don't want people to lose because they didn't have the right information. But since I was going to be very heavily on Gronkowski with my lineups last week, it was too bad that the news came out that Fournette was out before the contest locked because then it pushed Gronkowski's numbers through the roof, made it harder for him to be a guy where you were differentiated there. 
Uh, but Fournette at running back, a really easy choice, I think, especially if you think the Buccaneers could get upset. And I think that we're, I'm kind of moving in that direction as I continue to look at these teams here. And then on the tight end side, and in some ways, this is almost disappointing to me because I think that this will be a popular move. And I know that it's something that you're very interested in uh, based on the teams that you built uh, with the ship chasing guys for the original tournament and how it didn't pan out in the first week. And I think it's going to be a popular pivot now, but the GLSP loves George Kittle and sees a little bit of a more difficult road for some of the other high-profile tight ends. Within the context here of maybe it being a popular pivot already, you know, it's almost one of those things where I hope that people stick with Debo, and, and not even that I won't have a team with Debo myself. I mean, at this point, he's becoming my favorite player. He's just so ridiculously good and ridiculously fun. But I think that as you build these teams for this tournament, I mean, Kittle has to be front and center in terms of how you're thinking about the build. Yeah, I love those. I think um, I'm just pulling up some ownership. Debo came in uh, higher than I expected in the main tournament, and, and Pat Crane did some awesome ownership projections and, and does so incredibly well with those. They were very, very accurate. That is one guy that um, came in higher than I think any of us were expecting. Uh, you had Cup and Adams as the highest, which was expected. And then Debo was like, a tier above anyone else. He was uh, on 64% of rosters in the main contest. Adams was, uh, I believe, at 70-something percent. And then you had Cup over 90% of teams. Uh, yeah, Adams was 77%. Cup actually came in really high at 91 which is sort of hard to argue with. I mean, even as he had this really down game and it was like the perfect scenario for him to not succeed because he wasn't really catching passes early and they got way out ahead. He still winds up catching a TD late and uh, still, you know, still has like a 17 point game. I mean, it's just, he's just feels like he's going to get there regardless. But Debo was actually closer to, 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 to Devontae Adams than Adams was to Cup, which was sort of interesting. He's um, was, was very popular. And he obviously scored again. They run their whole offense through him, as we sort of know. Uh, you know, they're going to use him as a runner. They're going to use him as a receiver. Uh, when they need big plays, they're going to scheme ways to get the ball in Debo's hands. You don't, hands, you don't have the, the concern like we saw with like CeeDee Lamb last week that we talked about on an earlier show this week, where the Cowboys basically seemed not to understand they have a good football player on their team and, and aren't calling any plays to you know ensure the ball is in his hands somewhat. Is it like literally the opposite, right? San Francisco is going to make sure they're putting the ball in Debo's hands. One of the early offseason things I've seen is people discussing a little bit that this is going to be a trend. I would say this is one of the macro takes. This is a, a time of year that I'm looking at a lot of macro takes. This is one of the macro takes that I think is maybe one of the silliest is this idea that what Debo has done is going to be repl replicated or even replicable because I think you look at Debo, I mean, you look at the TD he scored this week. It was a pitch outside from the, the halfback position. He waits patiently. He finds a cutback lane into traffic. And I actually went back and watched it a few times because uh, I had faded him in this contest, I guess. Largely, <laughs> he was like one of our biggest <laughs> underweight positions. But it made me so mad to, to, to continue to watch how he broke out of that, that mass of bodies and then split two defensive backs that were both five yards further downfield. And, you know, one was coming over from the weak side and maybe not coming over as fast as they should have. But you had this, you had this situation where he finds a way to get out of this massive bodies, pick his cutback lane, and then split two DBs that are further downfield on, on the third level. And, you know, obviously score the touchdown, but it's just like, I mean, <laughs> he's legitimately one of the most explosive play half, like one of the best explosive play halfbacks in the NFL, like full stop, maybe ever. <laughs> like he has these traits that are that like you hope your halfback has where he has the patience, the ability to let blocks set up and then the explosiveness. I mean, I, I don't have stats on his explosive play rate when he's been at the halfback position but I have to imagine that his like these long touchdown runs that he continued to do all season, 
it ha- like as a rate of his plays at halfback specifically, it has to be comparable to the best of all time. And I, I think it's probably better than like the Jamal Charles explosive play rates or the Derrick Henry explosive play rates. Yeah, I mean, you look at, at Debo and what you see is basically Jamal Charles, Christian McCaffrey, that type of player. I mean, it's more likely in some ways that we see McCaffrey used like Samuel than wide receivers used like Debo is being used. I mean, the runs that he is creating, running backs can't do. And so the idea that wide receivers would be able to go in there and do those I mean, that's going to be pretty challenging. Now, I, I do think that there is this possibility that we'll get the playmaker more involved. And one of the things that we do see when you're looking at prospect analysis is that some of these peripheral touches matter, right? When you're wide receiver, and it's especially true for the the smaller receivers. And I think that you know, Debo, obviously very stout, but you know, not a 6'4", not a Calvin Johnson type of player there, especially for the smaller receivers, you see the value in terms of things like punt returns, kick returns, rushing touches, those things are very positive indicators for their potential NFL success. And then if you can take some of those players when they're at the NFL level and get the ball in their hands, after we had our, our long talk about CD Lamb yesterday, I just thinking about it through the day and just more and more this kind of frustration and clarity in terms of the difference between the players like that, and even sometimes the good players will go through those stretches as the team kind of does some self-evaluation and figures out what they need to do. But like you said, there's just this very clear cut contrast between the teams where, I mean, when you have a Cooper Cup or a Devontae Adams, and I and Cup is just so obvious, but even you know, you think of Adams and how the Packers are gonna play, there's absolutely no chance that the Packers go out and play their game this weekend the way that the Cowboys did with Lamb last weekend. And so, I mean, that's not something where it's like, okay, the the volume is going to go up and down a little bit. There's just no chance. that It's completely different situations. And for Lamb to get where he needs to be, it's got to be more that situation, which means the team has to believe in that, the quarterback has to believe in that, and has to be able to make those throws, which Prescott has a lot of strengths. Clearly, he's not Aaron Rodgers. And so, you know, there are some differences there. But getting back to this point, you know, with Samuel and, and what you're talking about, I could see teams try and get their playmakers involved more, and that would be smart. And if you can't do it through passing plays, that having the occasional handoff and the occasional sweep, those types of things. I mean, obviously, we saw with Robert Woods, who, you know, as a pale comparison uh, in terms of what he could do compared to Debo, but we've seen teams do that. I think we'll see them do it a little bit more. But the idea that they could do it in a way that is like what Debo does, I mean, there's, you just can't because it's not. Yeah, it's there's no way. I mean, he's he literally is bringing something that halfback. You hope that your halfback could even dream of of bringing. There, you can't just magically uh, recreate that, and, and certainly an element of that as well is just the San Francisco running game and the way that they've been able to ex- create explosive plays no matter who's at running back over a very long period of time. That is helpful. So like, yeah, I, I, teams would love to recreate the San Francisco running game and their blocking schemes and the way that, that Kyle Shanahan does things. They they would have done that before now if it was that easy. Uh, I love everything you just said. The, the Bengals did it this week with Jamar Chase. They gave him three rush attempts. He had seven all season. Uh, a couple of end of rounds. It was more like the traditional wide receiver touches, but the same concept, right? Let's get the ball in this elite athlete's hand. He had, a, I think, like 25 rushing yards on those three attempts. It was a, a helpful part of their offense to get a couple seven, eight-yard runs. When you have low 4-3 speed, I mean, you want to have the ball in your hands some. There's no yeah. question. So that's the part where they're, they, I think it was obvious to anyone watching that game, said, we're going to find ways to get the ball in Jamar Chase's hands. When you were talking about Lamb, the the thing that I really wanted to jump back in with that I had thought more about since our conversation earlier this week was, one, just crystallizing this idea that I talked a lot about in last week's show. I won't go into all the numbers again, but he didn't run the full route share that he should have, essentially. As a a first-round receiver, you just don't see it. He averaged in the low 80s in terms of routes per dropback. We got a question on ship chasing this week, Lamb or Waddle for next year. Typically, we see rookies not run full sets of routes. Or sometimes it's actually like Pat Crane wrote a great article about this last year. Waddle ran more routes than Lamb, even though I'm pretty confident I haven't actually double checked. But the, the Cowboys had more pass plays, you know, more dropbacks. But Waddle, as in terms of routes per game, had more routes than Lamb, which like almost doesn't make sense. 
Well, the two teams are, are very different in terms of the other options that they had a receiver. And so that's going to, but, but kind of like we were talking about, sometimes when you have more options, you don't make the right choices because you think that you can get away from your best guys, which is a mistake. Yeah. But just kind of crystallizing the point on Lynn, there are clear paths to me for him to still be successful. He was efficient. I, I looked at the numbers a little bit more efficient in terms of yards per run. It was fine in terms of targets per run. Ron was solid in yards per target, all these different ways that you can break up. Th- those are the ways to break up yards per run. But to me, it's like, okay, he can run more routes next year. Right. And actually like, I don't think he can run less routes going into year three uh as as far as like early off season best ball drafts and whether i'm going to be targeting this guy his paths for next year include just simply getting more routes getting up into a higher route bracket taking a slight step forward from in targets per run to get to sort of that elite tier that we didn't see this year but again he was right in that like second tier of players as i broke down the last show or potentially being even more efficient he could certainly be less efficient but there's these like different paths and all of them could hit at the at the same time as well it's as I heard you talking about it, I was completely thinking about this concept of situation regression that we talked about with DJ Moore this offseason, which started to look positive in the beginning of the year. It ended up actually being a really poor situation for him as well in terms of the quarterback play. But Lamb is so clearly to me, as you're sitting there talking about teams that are making sure to get the ball in the hands of the of their good players and the Cowboys. I mean, even just the fact that they were uh, you know, they came out this week and we heard that Zeke had a torn, they're saying, they're calling it a torn PCL that he's been playing on. Like, what the hell are you doing playing him? I, I understand he wants to play and he's your big money guy and everything, but everyone could see he couldn't turn the corner. And you actually had Tony Pollard as an explosive back, but every touch you gave him, everyone was joking. You know, you're just wasting downs. How, how do you let that come in the way of like, he wasn't physically, he's one of the, Physically, to my eye, eye test, whatever, one of the worst running backs in the NFL in terms of every time you got a touch, it's like, I know this isn't going to be an explosive play. And if you're running the ball, you need to at least have some idea that there's a possibility that your guy can make an explosive play or else you're basically just throwing away downs in most situations. Yeah. I mean, it's especially frustrating because of the context of him not being one of the best running backs in the NFL, even when he's completely healthy. And so you have no business playing when he's injured. And so this is a team that I think clearly showed in other ways as well. Didn't understand how to use personnel. I think we can chalk up a, a decent percent of what happened to Lamb. If I was to pin sort of the situation element on a, when I talk about situation regression or whatever, I, I've sort of sometimes been like, this was the 25th percentile situation. And, you know, hopefully we'd see the 50th percentile going forward. I mean, I think for Lamb, like that's definitely a part of it, especially with the routes and, and the fact that they weren't designing plays for him and all these things. There are, there is potential for that to happen in the future, certainly. So that's a positive. Hello there, Colm Kelly here, co-host of the Rotoviz Overtime Podcast. I just want to take a moment to let you know as a loyal Rotoviz Podcast listener, you can save yourself 10% off a Rotoviz NFL pass. All you have to do is head on over to rotoviz.com, add the subscription to your basket, and add the promo code RVRADIO2022 at checkout. That'll get you 10% off, it'll get you access to all of our content and tools, and of course set you up for success in all your 2022 fantasy football rosters. That code is RVRADIO2022. I hope you enjoy the podcast. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. 
That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring this podcast. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System, you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. At hundreds of locations across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's U-N-I-F-Y-D healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Getting back to the playoff contest, uh, we were talking about Debo and kind of drifting down this road. I You had brought up Kittle, and I, I do think he is a great pivot play, and especially because I think with Debo, you know, leading San Fran and scoring again and showing again why people wanted to play him 60, on 64% of the lineups that Kittle had come in at 15%. Elijah Mitchell was 14%. And even Elijah Mitchell did a lot better than Kittle. You talked about the constraints on the running back position. And IU comes in really low as well, but is also played a little bit and could be someone to be played again in this contest as a, a you know, a 1% guy if you really wanted to get off the board. Well, and there's, I mean, there are plenty of scenarios in which Debo actually does get stopped in the running game, doesn't get the rushing touchdown, and Ayuk finishes with, you know, 10, 11 targets, catches six or seven balls for 100 yards and a touchdown, and then you're in fantastic shape with him. Yeah, and I love the, yeah, you could be in great shape with Ayuk, but I just wanted to to emphasize to anyone who might be playing this that I, I do completely agree with you that I think Kittle comes in. He was at 15%. I don't think he comes in higher than 15% because I think Mitchell might be higher than 14%. I think Debo, if anything, could be higher than 64%, at least should be in that range. Maybe he'll come down a little just because that was really lofty and people look at that and say, well, I want to pivot off this a little. But I don't see Kittle coming in much higher than like 20% if he adds a couple of percentage points. So he'll be a really fun play in this contest as well. There's there's a number of them that I think you can look at and say are going to be in 20% or fewer lineups. I think you want to try to stack those to really differentiate your lineup. It's, you know, it's not the most likely thing on a lot of these teams. Obviously the most likely thing is that Debo is going to play, but, or, or play well or be their highest score. But, um, you know, Kittle and and like Higgins and Aaron Jones, you start stacking some of these guys who are, are some of my favorites that are not going to be on a lot of teams. You can certainly see paths to those guys being the highest scoring player on their teams. I, I do think, like you said, that you want to be smart. I think like, for instance, uh, Derek Henry and Mixon are both going to be, popular running backs and you you know that they both have bad matchups but they also play each other and so you almost can't play them together in my mind because both of them in losses are going to be sort of tough plays where i'd rather personally would rather have the receiver in those lineups at a lower ownership if i know the team's going to lose so i, I kind of want if i'm going to play either of them i, I want to be pairing that with henry chase is probably going to be a popular pairing but henry higgins maybe or mixon aj brown or if you want to go crazy mixon julio right do you so I have a couple of thoughts here. The, we'll stick with that one first because a lot of the sophisticated participants are going to play it that way with the idea that you want to offset the running back and wide receiver. And we're trying to get lineups that are powerful but not duplicated. What's your thought on what you how you think people will play it because those guys are such big names? Do you still expect it to be Henry and Mixon a lot together? Because if everybody is going either Mixon Brown or Henry Chase, then you would be able to get a powerful and yet in some ways less duplicated lineup if you did just go with the two stars there and assume that if you think it's valuable, that one of those guys then does have to get through. And so you have a running back in the next round. I think there will be a decent number of lineups that have Henry and Mixon in it together. Um, but I get your point where when you say the more sophisticated ones, I don't think those ones will necessarily be paired with a lot of interesting pivot plays. They're probably going to be the ones that people are just playing and picking the guys that they like the most and not really considering the ownership angle at all. And so you wind up with potentially Henry Mixon and then Debo and then Adams and then Cup and then it's just all the chalk lineup. So if you do want to play Kittle and Aaron Jones, and you know, even Cam Akers, that doesn't really make a lot of sense because now you're playing too many running backs. But um, if you're finding other sharp pivots, 
you know, say you're playing Tyree Kill and Stephon Diggs, who both are probably going to go a little bit underappreciated because I think the running backs on both those teams having the good first weeks and the quarterbacks being sort of the clear chalk for, for Buffalo and Kansas City. Uh, and then obviously, obviously you have Kelsey as well for, Can- for Kansas City. You have Dawson Knox having a two-touchdown game for the Bills. Diggs and Tyreek, I think, are other great leverage plays. There's a lot. I mean, almost every team you can look at and say there's a recency bias player that has way more ceiling than this and is probably not going to be owned enough in this contest. If you want to play those types of receivers and play, you know, Ayuk or, or whoever, Kittle, I think you could play a Henry and Mixon lineup and probably be unique. I mean, I, I do agree with you. The, the, I think most of the lineups that play Henry and Mixon, there will be a lot, but they'll probably be the ones that tend to eat the chalkier plays across the whole contest. So we look at that and then also within the context of the quarterbacks, and we know that the quarterback ownership tends to be a little bit more spread because you can only have one and people are building their scenarios off of the QB. You were mentioning that some of the numbers on the QBs were interesting last week, Tom Brady in more lineups than we might've expected. Now Brady obviously does have the potential to go off for multiple games in a row. And so you can see that if, obviously if you're picking the Buccaneers to be in the Super Bowl, he's going to be an option for you. I mentioned that I was moving a little bit more in the direction of the Rams. And one of the reasons for that is they have been so dynamic against quarterbacks as of late, right? You look at their last five games, they hold Russell Wilson to 5.8 points. They hold Kyler Murray to 5.5. They also hold Cousins, Huntley, and Garoppolo under 20. So they're on this long stretch of dominating in the passing game for the Bucks to win. I think they're going to have to be successful through the year. Now, Leonard Fournette may be back. He's a good option in this contest because of all those dump off passes that he gets. Obviously, he can score around the goal line if they get down there. And yet, Brady, I think, is a little bit trickier. That, in some ways, moves me off of Cup as a guy to try and differentiate with. One of the reasons why Adams and Cup were so heavily rostered to start with beyond the fact that they're just stars is that you it's, it's difficult to see them not playing multiple games especially with cups and the, the thing with adams that makes it a little bit trickier is the buy then robs you of a game and you know you're going to play a very good team in the next round maybe you lose and you're out in which case an aaron jones could easily sneak in there if he's the receiving back in the loss with cup harder to see that but now that we're into a situation where they're going to be underdogs you would expect them to, to win less than 50 percent of these games once you're into a one-game situation with Cup, it's much easier to say in a one-game scenario he could get outscored and could be in a situation where he's not obviously in the optimal lineup. So who are you playing? Because you can't you can't fade. So who – I mean, I think the question for Cup – I agree with that in theory, but the question for Cup is who do you play instead? Yeah, and the other thing in terms of looking for these options is you do have to have options that will score for you and options that fit with the rest of the scenario. We saw Akers get close to a situation where he had a big game. You're not necessarily looking for him against this Buccaneers defense. Now, Odell Beckham, someone that, you know, we're, 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 he's on this dynasty roster we're going to talk about in a bit. So we, we might as well try and pump him up for uh, <laughs> great value perspective here. He looked good in this last game. If the Buccaneers sell out to stop Cup, Beckham is wide open throughout the game. We could see a lot of targets. We could see a multi-touchdown game. I would think that he's got to be at least a consideration. But for me, I'm staying on cup, and I'm looking at the AFC again as where you actually have to have your quarterbacks. I was surprised that people weren't playing it a little bit more heavily through the AFC quarterbacks in the original contest. The thing that jumps out here is that GLSP gives much higher projections for Joe Burrow and Josh Allen. That's interesting within the context of, I think, the Chiefs being in a lot of danger (laughs) in this game coming up. So I think that Allen really someone you have to look at as the foundation piece, and then how do we build off of that? But then if you want to be a little bit contrarian, Joe Burrow with how dynamic they've been and with the Titans defense, you know, springing a few holes maybe – they have not been as dynamic over the last five games. And you can go back to the week 18 performance where maybe they uh, don't give enough respect to Houston. Maybe it's something where they get up early and, you know, they kind of 
played a little bit more passively. But when you get shredded by the Houston Texans in a game, you do have to win to lock down the number one seed, which is crucially important. I mean, that's a must-win game for them, and they do struggle somewhat. This is a game where you could easily see Joe Burrow with T. Higgins and Jamar Chase and then Tyler Boyd, who has been resurgent recently, putting up a lot of points. And then again, the shootout between the Bills Bengals or the Chiefs Bengals. I think we have a lot less concern that the Bengals will make the wrong choice in terms of their offensive approach. And really, as long as they choose to attack through the air, the upside is immense. And so I think Burrow, if you're trying to get a little bit of that, do you have a preference on how you're building your team through the quarterback position? Yeah, I think quarterbacks are really interesting. You mentioned Beckham with Cup. He he got off to such a hot start in that Arizona game, and then Arizona only winds up throwing 18 passes. And yet Cup comes back and scores 17.1, outscores Beckham on Beckham's receiving stats alone. Beckham had the the, the each score a touchdown. Obviously, Beckham could be the the guy who score is the only one who scores in a future game or scores multiple touchdowns in a future game. But he had 17.4 when you include the Be- Beckham did when you include that he had a 40 yard completion as well. So he very narrowly edged Cup in this game where it felt like the absolute perfect scenario by by 0.3 points. When you it felt like the absolute perfect scenario for Cup to have a down game essentially, very limited pass uh, volume overall, and the fact that he was not really involved early. Obviously, in a loss, they're going to throw a lot more than 18 times going forward. It's it, it's almost like I mean I, I I hear you and agree with your point, but it's almost like so hard for me to even visualize any game where Beckham actually outscores Cup, which is crazy because of the variance at, in targets and at the wide receiver position generally. But Cup still does wind up with a massive target share in this game, even with the limited volume and everything, and, and it ends up with I think his lowest yardage output probably of the whole season, but still ends up with a, a pretty solid score in the first round. But yeah, going going back to the quarterback thing, I think it is very very interesting. You you mentioned the the ownership from the main contest, and I mean I think that's the the top played quarterbacks all advanced, other than uh, Dak was at right around nine percent, uh, which was tied with Burrow for about fifth. But you mentioned that Brady and Rodgers came in a little higher than than I expected, than I think than than Pat Corain expected when we were looking at the ownership stuff. Mahomes and Allen were 25 to 23%. Rodgers was 14. Brady was 13. And then you had Burrow and Dak at nine. And so that was sort of the the breakdown. I think Mahomes and Allen after the monster games are going to be combined for even more in this smaller contest than the 48% combined that they had. I would expect them up around 60 or 70% of the field. And and I think it makes sense. (laughs) They, They... and I agree with you that I think Allen is probably going to be the one, especially because if you look at Mahomes, his weapons actually you know did some things in the past game, meaning Kelsey had a solid game. Tyreek also found the end zone, whereas for Allen, Diggs did not have a very big game. All of his touchdowns went to guys, you know, the, a couple of them went to Dawson Knox. One went to, I think, Gabe Davis. One went to Emmanuel Sanders, and one went to an offensive lineman, which those are all guys that were played very limitedly in this contest. And so the fact that Diggs had sort of a down game almost consolidates more back to Allen. I, I do think Singletary will have will catch more of Buffalo's overall ownership than probably the Kansas City running backs will. But I do think Allen winds up pl- being played the most. And then him and Mahomes combined, you're in this like 60 to 70% range, I think, overall. I think you have to account for with the field playing, Rodgers at about 14% and Brady about 13%. Another probably 20% on those guys again, because they are sort of strong plays in the NFC, the two favorite teams in the NFC to make the, the Super Bowl run. And so then you get down to, I think, probably only like 10 to 20% for all the other quarterbacks combined. I do think Burrow will be the clear fifth most popular quarterback in like, in a, I don't mean that in like a way that he's going to be low owned. I mean that in a way that he is going to have some ownership in the, in you know being fifth and being behind those other four but i it's hard for me to see him being much higher than 10 percent when you sit there and look at this contest and think that a lot of people are going to play mahomes and allen as good as they were and people are going to probably play rogers and brady more than they go to burrow so if you want to get to a guy like burrow i think the big advantage as well is if you're playing the Bengals to the super bowl obviously you're playing mahomes and allen to not be in the super bowl 
And so you're naturally pivoting away from the chalk in that scenario. And all you really need is basically Devonta Adams to be, if, if Green Bay makes it, to be the play on on a Packers run if they're their opponent or Fournette, for example, to be the play on a Tampa Bay run if they get all the way to the Super Bowl or Cup if the Rams are the team or Debo or somebody if if the Niners are the team. There's clear options on the NFC side where the skill guy could be the right play. Burrow obviously has clear options as well where Jamar Chase or T. Higgins or Mixon even could could play so well over three more games that they could make more sense than Burrow. But if you if we do get a Cincinnati Super Bowl, I mean, I don't think it's probably going to be Mahomes or Allen in a two-game scenario because you get the you get double the points for the for the Super Bowl scoring. And if Burrow does really anything in the Super Bowl, um, or the NFC quarterback does really anything, I think you're definitely going to have a significant advantage. You're going to want the quarterback in the Super Bowl even more than the main contest because you're basically getting four games worth of points with the double Super Bowl as compared to two. Whereas in the main contest, it's sort of like thinking through five games worth of points compared to three if you're trying to pick a quarterback that doesn't make it to the Super Bowl. I'm kind of getting, I guess, maybe a little too technical. Hopefully some of the listeners are are kind of following what I'm trying to say. But I I think Burrow's a really interesting pivot that will still, you know, come in on not a ton of teams, come in, you know, a little bit in check is a – if you pick a quarterback other than Mahomes or Allen, basically, is, is the point I'm trying to make. You're starting with a pretty unique structure, and I think it's a smart way to to think through this contest, to, to immediately get yourself off of the scenario that the majority of the field is going to play in the AFC, which is probably that the winner of Casey Buffalo goes to the Super Bowl, and that quarterback is the one that you wanted. Yeah, that's that's a perfect way to break it down. A couple more just sort of quick notes you know, as we're thinking through this, Diggs, not a huge game last week. You have Devin Singletary continue his hot streak. That will, in all likelihood, change how they are rostered going forward. And I think that Diggs does set up now to potentially have a game or two like the week 16 game last season where he was so huge. You look at Kansas City, you mentioned that a lot of people are going to want to go with Hill, want to go with Kelsey perhaps in a loss. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that the streamer, the, the GLSP, don't like the Kansas City weapons against this elite Buffalo pass defense. And they do like the running option. So if it's pretty clearly going to be McKinnon, because Daryl Williams has a toe injury, looked very limited last week. If you could project almost all the touches to McKinnon, which is still a little bit up in the air, that would be interesting. Now, I only mentioned that as sort of a contrarian play off of what I think most people are going to do. One of the things that we know with an elite pass offense is that you do have some of these things are, are self-leveling. And sometimes the elite pass offenses are so efficient in the first two-thirds of a game that they don't need the fourth quarter. And so you don't get that out of them. And then you go up against a tougher team. If you have Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey and Tyreek Hill, like now we get to play for the whole thing. And so don't tell us about the defense. You know, we can still take this defense apart. So I think it really depends from that perspective, like what kind of prices you're getting. And the price obviously within this contest is what other people are doing. And if it's going to allow you to differentiate your team. So that would be the question not so much that we don't think the Chiefs could possibly beat the, the Bills' defense, but maybe it moves you off of them to a more contrarian option in this particular case. So again, Ben and I are going to build some teams. It's going to be fun. We encourage you guys to get in there and do that. But before we wrap up today... Well, real quick, let me, let me jump in and just for the listeners, because we've been talking about all these different chalk things. I just quickly wrote what I think will be sort of the most popular build. So to, just to put a bow on that in, in terms of anyone who wants to take any of these pivot ideas or whatever, I think probably the most popular lineup will be Allen at quarterback, either one of Henry or Mixon or, or both. Then you have Kelsey, Debo, Cup, Adams, and then Tampa Bay sort of the, the swing one where I, I don't really know if it goes Fournette, Evans, Gronk. I think probably – the most popular is not to have Henry and Mixon in together. So it's like Henry Fournette and then Chase or Mixon Fournette and AJ Brown. Uh, but it might, there might be a lot of lineups as well with Mixon Henry and then the, the Kelsey Debo cup Adams 
and then one of Evans and Gronk. And so your two running backs are both in that that AFC matchup with the, the Bengals and Titans. So that would be what I would think is going to be sort of the most chalky thing if you just want that to, to write down somewhere. And, and if you do want to make some lineups, make sure you're pivoting at least, I would say, in like three spots off of that so that you can get somewhat of a, a unique team. All right, Ben. We've started to get a lot of trade offers for our team here that has a lot of interesting pieces. We have four first round picks. Those picks are the 103, the 104, the 107, and the 112. Kind of the heartbreaking thing here is that the 112 was a team that was not in the playoffs heading into the final week and then had a huge final week, got through us, in the quarters went on to do very well in the semis and finals and, and one of the things here with this too is the ffpc has a good format i think in that it disincentivizes massive tanking in that you have a backdraw for the one through six slots you had mentioned before the show uh, i believe that adam parstead was pointing out that being either at the top or the bottom is helpful in Dynasty. Obviously, you want to be at the top and win, but the top couple of picks there can really change your team. You need to move into that range in order to reload or rebuild. But having a ton of teams tanking at the same time in your league is not great for the competitiveness of it. The FFPC, the teams that finish with the two worst records, they do get a buy in the first round of the backdrop, so you're guaranteed a top four pick. But obviously not guaranteed that top one, which is relevant here, I think, in terms of trying to make the contest. And when you look at some of the teams that just miss, that can actually be the best spot because you're going to have a powerful team to win the back draw. The thing here, kind of wrapping this back around to this idea of having the 112, this team was obviously good enough that if they had missed and had been in the back draw, their chances of securing the number one pick for us would have been very high. Now, <laughs> you know, if you have the person's pick, it's pretty much up in the air if they will you know, start a real lineup during the backdrop because obviously their incentive is, is a little bit lower there. Now, there is a difference between having the 201 and the 206. And so from that perspective, if you still have your second round pick, you would still want to start a lineup and, and win that slot. Uh, we do have the 202. So we have five of the top 14 picks. We have nine picks in the first three rounds. So we have some things we can do, some flexibility with the draft. And then our team is Kyler Murray and Derek Carr at QB. The Obviously, there's going to be work to do. A lot of the sort of cut players, you got to get down to 16 at some point here in the offseason. And we've got a lot of these zero RB guys like uh, Devontae Freeman, Deontay Foreman. Uh, those types of players will get cut. But we probably will be keeping running backs like James Conner and Ronald Jones. And then we have a very deep wide receiver group that's headlined by Debo and DJ Moore. Our tight end position, and again, the tight end premium here, I think is valuable. And then in Dynasty, if you can get this stretched over multiple years, you can be in very good shape with not only the tight end position, but the flex position of multiple flexes in this format. We have Cole Komet, Pat Fryermuth, and Mike Gesicki. Hopefully one of those guys will take the next step and actually be a difference maker as opposed to just a nice piece of the lineup. So that kind of sets the stage. We talked about Darren Waller a little bit last week. As soon as the show ended, we got an offer of Waller and a 2023 third for Elijah Moore. We also got an offer of Naheem Hines for Tyler Boyd. Now, we've had a lot of offers for Boyd. He's been an interesting player who's gotten a lot of, well, interest, even though his season up until this last month was a little bit disappointing. But I, I feel like people think that he's established a floor, right? And he's a good guy at the very least as a bi-week fill-in, but also as we watch the trajectory of this Bengals offense, it's actually pretty easy to see him being a solid wide receiver three for 2022, 2023, 2024, that kind of thing. So when you look at Boyd, you know, we're not going to trade for Heinz. Heinz is someone we're particularly interested in at least until the season would start, right? He, he probably isn't worth the roster spot at this point, much less a solid wide receiver here. Thoughts on where we're going, what you think of the Waller trade, where you are on Elijah Moore, what you want for Boyd, what jumps out to you 
from our dynasty team here as being kind of the first thing for us to address? I, yeah, I mean, I think that's a good question. It's tough. I we're, we're in an interesting spot where we do have the really deep receivers, the three tight ends. We're sort of naturally fit to not, not just zero RB, but I think a, a lot of the smartest dynasty people that I talk to, like yourself, would say that you don't want to be really heavily on running backs at this point in the offseason and if possible to, to sort of be trading out of it. But we're naturally in that position where we're not and we have a lot of picks if we use some of that to, to draft running backs, although I'm, I'm pretty confident we're going to just want to keep drafting receivers. <laughs> but I, I think the first thing to address isn't necessarily clear because we're certainly not going to go try to address running back right now and go acquire one, but that is the, the very clear weakness to, to this team being successful, but that's something we can address in the off, like the later part of the off season, the Waller trade is interesting. Um, but certainly we do have, multiple tight ends now we can flex but we kind of have our future tight end set up and so there's some interesting elements to that where we could potentially be just sort of seeing waller as this bonus player who has legitimate upside and, and high scoring potential and we're still set for the future at tight end but we're, we're sort of locking ourselves into playing multiple tight ends i don't think that's necessarily a bad path but you know in, in tight end premium but it isn't necessarily either the, the thing that I would jump at uh, to, to give up Elijah Moore, who I think a lot of people are very high on. I would want, you know, a pretty, a pretty nice offer to, to get off of him right now when tight end isn't really a huge need. And, and obviously Waller is in a position where we talk all the time that his value probably isn't going to rise and has the potential to really crater if he has, you know, another tough season. And so that's the kind of guy that, um, you know, in moving more would be a pretty big step away from this idea of, you know, perpetual reloading and those things. We'd be taking on uh, a fairly fragile, I think, value for a player who's going to be a 30-year-old tight end. And um, if he has some more injuries or whatnot, he, he would be a guy that, uh, as you mentioned to me when we talked through this a little bit, we would just want to hold to zero um, as, a, as a player that we think has really high-end production and over the next three to five years and we're probably not so concerned about his future value because we're probably never going to retrade him if we were to acquire him. But um, again, not, not enough, I think for more, I'm not sure about, you know, Boyd or more what I would actually want to make those trades. I do think, you know, as we get these offers, we talked about a Juju offer on the last, uh, the, the last show, we're very deep at receiver with some players that have the potential to recoup value or be, you know, solid receiver pieces in a format where you can play three receivers and two flexes, you know, Boyd or, or Juju might not be guys that seem like you'd want them in, in your lineup in the future. But certainly if things shift for them in, in a little ways in, in a league like this, it's this deep for the wide receiver position, you start to get into injuries in season and buys. Those are guys that are nice to have to still be able to have some upside in your flex spots. And so guys like that are great and yet also not, we, like we have a lot of them. We have a lot of paths there. We have Will Fuller. We have, you know, LaVisca Chenault who had a really rough year and, and maybe has nothing, uh, you know, maybe it's just a true bust, but could also at least rebound and be in, in that range. You know, you've mentioned Beckham several times. We have Michael Thomas on this roster still. I mean, there's, there's a lot of ways that our receiver group can be better in the future than it was this year. But at the same time, we have so many of them that moving one or two is, is certainly when I see these offers, I'm like, yeah, I mean, I don't have an issue moving a Juju or a Tyler Boyd uh, or even Elijah Moore if we get a really nice offer for him. So maybe that's the place I would say we, we start, but finding the right offer, I think is, you know, takes a little work always. It does. It does. And Elijah Moore tricky because there's I mean, no question that he is a little guy that can hit the upside in some ways, he also is going to be on a team with a lot of questions. He's going to have a lot of questions at the quarterback position. But even with that, and you can say, well, he didn't have Zach Wilson for some of these games, and that was the true problem. But his last seven appearances, six double-digit scores, two over 20, he came in with a, an undervalued – I mean, people were excited about him, and because the offseason buzz about how he performed in camp – was so enthusiastic. It's not like he was this 
undervalued player, but I think it, a lot of in a lot of ways he was still an undervalued prospect before the buzz starts going. I think that it's easy to get in these situations where like we have to sell the buzz <laughs> to an extent because we know that what people are doing in shorts in the middle of summer is not that relevant, even though it's, it's better to have good buzz than bad buzz. That's no question. But he's such a good prospect, had such a dynamic rookie season at times, and the ability to go vertical and to create big plays was obviously there. You know, it, the upside would be someone like an Antonio Brown. And so it would be difficult to move off of that when there's almost no scenario in which his trade value drops over the next 18 months and the actual value could skyrocket from what is already pretty significant so it'll be hard to trade him without a huge offer Boyd, interesting there because you could argue that maybe we have some other guys who could fill the same role and the depth is valuable this offer comes from an interesting team and just to kind of think through how some trades might work uh, we can pull up that roster and look at it a little bit kind of thinking through a counter that we might be interested in making. Now, this is a team that is built to win now and has some firepower at QB with Patrick Mahomes. They are a stud, stud running back team with Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon. They have Tyler Higby at tight end, which gives you a little bit of that secondary breakout almost if the Rams can kind of consolidate what they've done offensively with Matthew Stafford. So you, you've got some good pieces there. And then at wide receiver, it's sort of deep with wide receiver two, three types of pieces who are veterans in Tyler Lockett, Robert Woods, Jarvis Landry. And then you have Michael Gallup, a very wide range of outcomes player. And you have Devontae Smith, who's sort of the young up and coming player to supplement these guys. The concerns there, obviously, again, just that he is on the smaller side that might limit certain types of upside. And then in a very run heavy offense, we would expect them to move off of being, you know, as you've mentioned on the show many times, so far below expectation on the pass rate. But even once they move, you know, in a more neutral direction, you're worried a little bit about overall target volume. Now, Smith could be a monster target share guy, which would neutralize some of those concerns. But wide receiver an element there that this team might want to build both more depth and upside on to complement the star pieces that they have in a win-now situation. They don't have a first-round pick for 2022, so they're going to have to make these moves through the trade market. Then you might be kind of seeing the direction that I'm going in by the player that I haven't mentioned, and that is J.K. Dobbins. And you just mentioned that we probably wouldn't be addressing running back at this point in the offseason. But what are your thoughts here? Because Dobbins is a guy, I think, with a very wide range of outcomes. It's not automatic that people are going to come off of injuries, even if they're young players, and be back to what they were. We know with Dobbins, there's the question mark there of if he's going to get receptions. Now, this Baltimore offense in some ways is more encouraging for the skill positions than in the past. And yet, we probably would project something in between what they did this year and what they have normally done. And then the question always really comes back to not how much do they pass overall, although that, that is an issue, but do they pass to the running back? Even if that running back is JK Dobbins, does Dobbins have any ceiling in this offense? Can we get value out of him and then move him later? You know, would we even want him as a piece? And then obviously how would the trade partner see him? Is this an untouchable piece? What will we have to add to Tyler Boyd to get him? And so the thing that I would sort of float to you here and, and see if you would have any interest, see if you think it would get the trade done, would be Tyler Boyd plus either Juju, Michael Thomas, or Odell Beckham, and then plus the 112 with us getting the 2023 first rounder back to us. So the, by sending the 112 this year, this team that's in a little bit more of a current winning window could make moves to address their lineup earlier. They would get a two for one. They would address their wide receiver position, but they would be probably giving up the most valuable piece. I think pretty clearly the most valuable piece in terms of how these players are valued right now in the dynasty trade market in JK Dobbins. It would make them thinner at running back, but they would still have these pieces that you would want to start with in terms of Dalvin Cook and Joe Mixon. So. Any interest from you on our side? Do you think this trade is in the range where it would be doable? 
it's always tough for me <clears throat> to speak to the valuations of whether it'd be doable. Uh, I, I just never, never feel like a, a, a much of an expert on the dynasty trade market. I do think in terms of our goals, it makes a lot of sense. Like trading the, the 112 for a 2023 first just on its face, I think is a, probably a positive for us and could be a positive for the other side who is trying to get into the, uh, you know, to get into 2022 production, right? But even before that 2023 pick could ever be made. But for us, having as many picks as we do in the first few rounds and a pretty deep roster, we are looking for, you know, intelligent ways to move picks into the future. Obviously, a team that is going to compete in 2022 would hope that their 2023 pick winds up being somewhere close to the 112 next year. And so, you know, we take the gamble that maybe it ends up being a 106 or 107 or something. They get the pick this year. I think that could be uh, a solid marriage and something that we should look at in any of our larger deals. As far as the players involved, Dobbins, I think, makes a lot of sense. The, the immediate thought for me with him is always, you know, I, I always think of everything through the high value touch lens. Is there going to be enough, you know, receptions and touchdowns for him to have a huge ceiling? Now, it doesn't have to be a huge ceiling, especially on this roster where we don't have really any running backs that we feel great about next year. I mean, James Conner would be the best. He had a very strong year, but he is getting up there in age and we know that everything can change so quickly. And so it could be a thing where Connor is not very productive for us in 2022. We're hoping for a guy like a Ronald Jones to, to maybe land on a new roster where he can get consistent usage uh, and be a, a useful piece next year. But obviously, J.K. Dobbins, a healthy J.K. Dobbins in 2022, would be the clear top running back for this team. And we'd be putting him in every week. And even if he was only able to get us you know, 12 points per game or something, that would be a very useful thing. Uh, we'd be hoping for a lot more. I think there's the potential for him to, to be very efficient, obviously, in this running game. We've seen that in the past. We know that Lamar Jackson's presence is going to increase the efficiency of all the backs. We saw Devonta Freeman have a very strong year after he looked, you know, like his career is probably winding down. It, it is a, a backfield that I think is going to elevate whatever the running back is uh, in terms of efficiency. And, and the touchdowns could certainly be there for Dobbins and all of those things. My concern for me is that we're talking about acquiring a player who does have a current injury, is rehabbing that injury. There are those risks. And then if we navigate that correctly and things work out well, is the payoff right such that it makes sense to be taking on that risk now? Because if everything does go smoothly, and probably it will, he's still very young and you would expect him to, to still have a career right, and be productive at some point, is the payoff you know, he's a tricky player to be acquiring where you're taking on some some risk, more risk than any other player that's healthy, that he's good to go and healthy again next season. Maybe not a ton more risk. Obviously, there are advances in, in modern medicine and all that thing, we, all that stuff. We should be somewhat bullish and somewhat optimistic, but um, a little bit, a little bit more risk. And is the payoff worth, you know, taking on that risk is the question that immediately comes into my mind. I think, again, you don't need him to be a 25-point-per-game running back or even a 20-point-per-game running back for him to be a useful piece. And and so there's, yeah, I, I don't have a clear answer to that. It's just the immediate thought that I had in terms of wanting to get a good price and wanting to to get, if we were able to acquire him, wanting, wanting to get him at, and, and the receivers you're talking about are guys that I'd be willing to move. And so yeah, I mean, I think it's it's right there in terms of uh, if, if the other side is willing to do it, I think there's probably ways that could work. Yeah, so we'll probably float this counteroffer, see what the interest might be. I always like to involve at least five pieces, of, you know, three for twos, four for threes, because I just don't find that there are that many situations where the pieces are either identically valuable or fill the needs without uh, of both sides without adding some other pieces in there. So we'll see if, if there's any interest. We'll keep you guys informed on how some of these dynasty trades are looking. If you have uh, suggestions for what we should do, what we should be looking at in the draft, anything like that, you could 
send it to Ben, you can send it to Colin who uh, communicates with me on our pod content. Uh, you can leave them in a rating and review for us if, if you'd like, that'd be a fun way to do it. Uh, that'll be this episode of Stealing Bananas. We had a great time with you guys. As always, we're looking forward to maybe the most fun week of the NFL season. Build some of those FFPC playoff contest lineups. If you do have an interest, as always, I'm Sean Siegel. With me is Ben Gretchen. You can follow at Yards Per Gretchen. Make sure you sign up for Seeding Signals. Ben has some really cool off-season content coming for you. If you want to get a 10% discount to Rotoviz, you can use the coupon code RVRADIO2021 at checkout. Subscribe to our feed. You'll get these shows when they release. And we'll talk to you guys soon.